so much, choir, quartet. How exciting, what a great number, huh? Uh, Steve, I think you're right. We touched all the bases today. If you didn't hear your style of music today, don't let me know about it. Well, today we're going to talk about somebody who faced mountains, and maybe you do too. We're going to turn in the book of Nehemiah and continue on the series of Living on the Edge, today with obstacles, or we might say with mountains. Do you ever feel like you're in deep trouble and you don't know what to do about it? Well, you might want to take the advice that's on the screen right now. Look at it closely. Sometimes trouble comes to you and to me because of our own foolishness, and sometimes it comes because of what we've done right. The greatest adventure that you can have is to live on the edge with God, to do things right. To do that, you have to make choices in your life. You have to leave behind the soft cushions of your comfort zone and stand at the precipice of risk. Not careless or foolish risk, but faith-filled risk. The kind of risk that believes that God exists and that He rewards those who earnestly seek Him. That's the edge of life where you and I will gain God's approval. Some imagine that uh, when you take a step like that, it will result in painless, unchallenged progress. They imagine that. They think that since it's God's vision that they've responded to and they're stepping on the edge for Christ's sake, everything from that point of decision is now going to be smooth and effortless. One word for you. Hello? (laughs) The lights may be on, but is anybody at home? You see, it just doesn't work that way. That's not the biblical view of reality. In fact, the Bible tells us that any God-given task in your life will be ferociously opposed. Why is that? Well, Peter says it this way, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him standing firm in the faith because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. Peter is saying to you and me that life is a battleground, not a playground. Now because when you and I step to the edge of our lives and we are then ferociously opposed, we must be strong. We must stand firm in the faith, as Peter has told us. Paul continues saying the same thing. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Nehemiah lived on the edge. 
and it brought him opposition. Nehemiah had to deal with stuff. Just like you and I have to deal with stuff in life when we're going to live for God. By looking at the text in Nehemiah today, I want us to see some of the weapons that are commonly used by our enemy, the devil, to thwart, to disrupt, to discourage you in the work that God has called you to do. The first weapon that was used against Nehemiah and is sometimes used against you is ridicule. Ridicule. Look in chapter 2 and verse 19. When Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about it, that they're rebuilding the walls, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you are doing? They asked. Are you rebelling against the king? It continues, chapter 4, verse 1. Are you able to see okay? Is it too dark in here for you to read? Some of you say fine. Others of you, I notice we have some lights out. So uh, if you can't read, just lift your hand. We'll turn the lights up a little bit. Chapter 4, verse 1. When Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall... He became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews. And in the presence of his associates in the army of Samaria, he said, What are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? Notice the ridicule here. Charles Simon Simmons said, ridicule is the first and last argument of fools. It's commonly used, isn't it? We hear it a lot today. Perhaps because it is such, it is, it seems, the weapon of choice, especially among the leftists in our country. From politicians to late night talk shows to entertainers, Ridicule is the weapon of choice. Now, it is one thing to disagree thoughtfully and to bring a reasonable intellectual argument for your position. But because the left in this country is absolutely bankrupt of such arguments, it resorts to mockery and derision. I've never seen anything like it in my lifetime. Now, derision and mockery have been used in the past, to be sure. In fact, 150 years ago, it was worse, believe it or not, in politics than it is today. But in my lifetime, I've never seen so much ridicule being used against leaders in our nation, and especially against our president. In the last five years, uh, he has faced an amount of ridicule that would make most men cringe and crawl back into a place of safety. I admire him for pressing ahead. Ridicule is not a new tactic, though. Don't think it. Don't think it. James Bernadelli, writing a review of Patrice Leconte's 1996 French movie, Ridicule, describes ridicule in these words. He says, The pen, or rather the word, is truly mightier than the sword. In late 18th century France, before the advent of the guillotine, 
wit was used as often for pain and humiliation as it was for pleasure. Those who had mastered the art of ridicule could, with one turn of a phrase, strip a less adept opponent of pride and position. The humor in ridicule, he's talking about the movie, such as it is, is exceptionally savage. LeConte and screenwriter Remy Waterhouse have not designed this film to offer inconsequential laughs. As in another film they had, there's calculated malice behind each barbed repost. But while nearly every comic aspect of ridicule is mean-spirited, it's difficult not to appreciate the intelligence behind the most vicious strikes. Now, do you, do you see some of the words that are used there to describe this movie? That's what ridicule, as an art and a science, is all about. It's wit that is used for pain. It's intended to humiliate the object of it. The turn of a phrase can strip an opponent of pride and position. It can be exceptionally savage. There's calculated malice behind each of the barbed comments. That's why perhaps ridicule might be spelled ridi cruel. Because you see, ridicule is a dagger that is cloaked in a pillow of humor. Using laughter to humiliate and destroy someone else. In 1 Corinthians, Paul tells us that the gospel of the crucified Messiah was ridiculed by the Gentiles. To them it was absolute foolishness to think that a Savior would die on a cross. It's illustrated in a piece of Roman graffiti, which comes from the second century A.D. This was found on Palatine Hill, and it shows Christ being crucified, only his head has been replaced with the head of a donkey. Before the cross stands another person with his arm upraised in worship and written underneath in Greek, are these words, Alexamenos worships his God. To the creator of this piece of second century graffiti, to worship Christ was to worship a donkey. Today, you and I face similar kinds of ridicule. A piece of modern art places the crucifix in a jar of urine, and it's applauded by the elite in the art world. There is a stereotypical depiction of Christians in entertainment as bumbling and ignorant and ab obscurantists. The media bias has bias and it slants its stories subtly against those who are believers in Jesus Christ. We see the same bias in what is presented publicly in the media regarding intelligent design, where some states and school districts have said that intelligent design should be taught equally as a theory with Darwin's theory of evolution. That very idea is ridiculed mercilessly in the press. And this last week, we've had a Supreme Court nominee 
who horrors of horrors believes that the Bible should be interpreted literally. Why, you would think that the world is coming to an end that such a narrow-minded person would be considered for the Supreme Court. This is how ridicule works. It is a very common tool of the enemy. Nehemiah faced it almost immediately when he went to work. And so do you. If you take a stand for Jesus Christ that isn't politically correct, or if you determine not to defile yourself with the same activities as your peers in school, or if you step to the edge of your life in obeying God, the enemy is going to come at you, and he's going to come at you from unsuspected places and sometimes with ridicule. It can come from family members. It can come from parents. It can come from people at work. It can come from fellow students. They will make fun of you, seeking to humiliate you. How do you remain strong in the face of ridicule? Follow Nehemiah's example. Look in chapter 4 and verse 4. After the ridicule of the previous verses, he says, Hear us, O our God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in the land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from our sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. What did he do? Nehemiah gave the insults to God, and he says, God, you deal with it. And he has some suggestions here as to how God might deal with it. That's what you and I can do as well when we are mocked and ridiculed for the name of Christ. We ought not to mock and ridicule back, but rather we ought to give the insults to God and let him deal with it. Believe me, God can deal with it a whole lot better than you and I can. There's not only ridicule in the devil's arsenal, there's a second that we see that takes shape against Nehemiah. It is force. If ridicule doesn't work, if words don't work, then there will be force and intimidation. In chapter 4 and verse 7, when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, uh, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the men of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. You notice that? In Nehemiah's time, even natural enemies became friends to oppose him. There was this strange alliance of people. The ridicule and the disdain did not discourage the workers, and so Satan roared like a lion by coalescing some enemies to bring an intimidating threat against Nehemiah and the workers. He will not be easily put off, this enemy of yours. You, as one of the people of God, face increasing persecution in our world today. We see it coming through judicial actions and through legislative decisions through the fiats of despots 
and all kinds of subtle coercion in the workplace to stand down, to back off your convictions. What did Nehemiah do in the face of force? Well, he goes on to say in our text, verse 9, but we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. There's an example for you as to what to do. First of all, pray. When you are intimidated, when you are threatened with some action, when there is, is a force that has gathered against you, commit it to God, first of all. But Nehemiah also takes a practical action. He posts a guard. And sometimes there are practical actions that you and I need to take in the form of legal action ourselves or doing whatever we practically can to defend ourselves in the face of the force that gathers against us. But the devil didn't stop with this. Nehemiah countered the, the weapon. And so the devil tried another tact. In verse 10 it says, Meanwhile the people in Judah said, The strength of the laborers is giving out, and there is so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. Also our enemies said, before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them and will kill them and put an end to the work. Then the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times over, wherever you turn, they will attack us. What's happening here? Discouragement. Discouragement. One of the favorite tools of the devil one author said, every great work, every great accomplishment has been brought into manifestation through holding to the vision. And often just before the big achievement comes apparent failure and discouragement. Discouragement is a great tool that the devil values very highly. In World War II, there was discouragement upon Britain because of the fierce attacks that came from the Nazis. But because one man was courageous and stood, the nation stood. And as you know, if you're a student of history, his name was Winston Churchill. As early as 1942, Winston Churchill returned to Harrow College to speak on an occasion. The war had just broken out not long before this, a couple of years. Churchill had been to the same college a year before. And now he comes back to speak again. The months in between his two speeches had seen catastrophic events in the war, including the attack on Pearl Harbor, so that now the United States was engaged with Britain in fighting their common enemies. It was in this speech, at a difficult time of World War II, when Churchill made the following comments to the students who were gathered before him. You cannot tell from appearances how things will go. Sometimes imagination makes things out far worse than they are. Yet without imagination, not much can be done. Those people who are imaginative see many more dangers than perhaps exist. Certainly many more than will happen, but then they must also pray to be given that extra courage 
to carry this far-reaching imagination. But for everyone, surely, what we have gone through in this period, surely from this period of 10 months, this is the lesson. Never give in. Never give in. Never, 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 never. In nothing, great or small, large or petty, never give in. Except to convictions of honor and good sense. And so this man stood, and because he stood, a nation stood. How did Nehemiah respond in the face of discouragement? Well, we notice that he addressed the fear by posting a guard so the people would not be afraid. And then he stood up and he gave the workers two reminders that we find in verse 14. He says to them, don't be afraid of them. He says, remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, and your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Two reminders in the face of discouragement. Number one, the Lord is great and awesome. Yes, indeed, the threats may be very real. The the rubble may be piled deep around you in your life right now, and you feel like giving up. May I remind you, as Nehemiah reminded the people of God in that day, the Lord is great and awesome. He's bigger than that pile of rubble that you're trying to deal with. The Lord is great and awesome. Take your eyes off of the rubble and put them on your God. But then Nehemiah also says, remember this too, the end is worth the fight. He says, if you don't fight at this point, remember what you're going to lose. The people you love and your very homes will be destroyed. When you and I are discouraged, sometimes it's good for us also to look at the alternative. If we give up here in midstream, what's going to be the result of it? And we will usually find that that end makes the fight even with discouragement, worthwhile. I hope that our government can remember that as we get pressure from the leftists of this country to withdraw immediately from Iraq. Whether or not you agree that we ought to be there, the fact is we are there and there is a fight and we had better finish it to the end or the end is going to be far worse than we could ever imagine. The consequences are just too great to give up. It's worth pressing on. That was true in World War II. It's true in our nation's history right now. And, my friend, it is true in your life. It is true in your life. Do not give in to discouragement. But the devil didn't stop there. He is piling it on, isn't he? He knows how to do that very, very well. For next he comes up with a plan of discord. It's in chapter 5. You see, if the devil can't succeed from the outside in your life, he'll open up an offensive from the inside. The inside of your team, the inside of your congregation, the inside of your nation. The truth is that discord is one of his most effective tactics. 
If he can get you as a child of God distracted by fighting with somebody else, his work is 90% done. He'll go sit down in the easy chair and watch you slug it out and enjoy the fight. The devil loves discord among the people of God. The outcry in chapter 5 surrounded a basic unfairness that was taking place. It's somewhat similar to the early church in Acts chapter 6, the first dissension that occurred in the church. The poor were being oppressed by a wealthy few. The point here is this. The devil was trying to distract Nehemiah and the builders from their work by this dissension, by the discord among the people. Nehemiah had a problem on his hands. How was he going to handle this? How do you be strong and deal with discord in your home or discord in your, your workplace or discord in your fellowship, discord in your group? How do you be strong and deal with that? Well, the answer to it is, is simple and yet sometimes complex. It is this. You be a part of the solution, not a part of the problem. You choose to be a part of the solution and not the problem. In Nehemiah's case, he corrected the wrong that had been done against the poor. He was part of the solution in that he himself conducted himself with honor and integrity. And then he continued the work. He pressed right on ahead, as verse 16 tells us. I devoted myself to the work on this wall. All my men were assembled there for the work we did not acquire any land. Talking about the issue that had taken place. And so he pressed ahead. He dealt with the injustice and then he united his troops and he went on with the work. But the devil didn't stop there. He had yet another tactic. It is one that is closest to his heart of all. It is the tactic of deceit. The devil is a liar. And he loves to use lies. It's the essence of his character to be a liar. In Nehemiah's situation, there's a series of there's a series of developments deceptive attempts to distract or to frighten or discourage or discredit, perhaps even to kill him. We don't have time this morning to read the narrative in detail in chapter 6, verses 1 through 13. But you can read about it. There is this attempt to deceive him, to get him to come down to a certain location on the plain of Ono. Now, when they invited him to come to the plain of Ono, they made a tactical mistake because they immediately planted in his mind the response that he should make. Oh, no, I'm not coming down. Oh, no. Oh, no to oh, no. And so he didn't go down. He knew what they were up to. They wanted to do him harm. Other attempts here to deceive, even some of his own people. What is a strong response to deceit that you can have? Deceit that is used against you. Deceit that is used to try to distract you or to discredit 
you in your life and your God-assigned task? Well, let's put it in two, word, two phrases. Number one, speak and act on the truth. That's what Nehemiah did. When lies were used against him, for example, in verse 8, he says, nothing like what you are saying is happening. He says, that is not true. You're just making it up out of your head. You see, he uses the truth to defuse the lie. He speaks and he acts, as the text goes on, he acts on the truth. And then in verse 14, he does something else that's important for you and me to remember. He says, remember, he's praying now, he says, remember Tobiah and Sanballat, O my God, because of what they have done. Remember also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who have been trying to intimidate me. What does he do? Nehemiah lets God deal with the liars. He lets God deal with them. Nehemiah's example in this text challenges you and me to live on the edge. We have one life, only one. Let's not waste our lives by sitting back in the comfort zone. Let's not allow ourselves to think that if we just take it easy and we don't press too much, if we don't live on the edge, we won't have any problems. Because that's not true either. You will have problems. What set of problems do you want? Do you want the set that comes from taking it easy in your life and just kind of floating through it? Or do you want the kind of problems that come because you're living on the edge for God and your life means something? Well, any thinking person, any child of God for sure will say, I want to live on the edge. And though there are problems with that, though there are obstacles, though the devil has weapons he will use against me, and we've looked at five of them today, I will stand on the edge with God rather than sit in my easy chair. Someone has said, if you're not living on the edge, you're taking up too much room. When you're already living on the edge, though, and then you run into obstacles like these, when you're attacked for doing what you think is right, you may feel vulnerable and dispirited and overwhelmed. What I want to say to you today is this. Be strong in the Lord as you courageously press ahead in the assignment that God has given you in your life. You get your vision from God when you move to the edge. You get your resources in play when you live on the edge. You have obstacles when you live on the edge, but be strong in the Lord and do not be afraid, but press on. Many of you know and, and respect and hear Dr. Charles Stanley, who uh, is a pastor in Atlanta and is the speaker on the In Touch radio and television series. Dr. Stanley's father died early in his life. He had very little memory of him. But his grandfather had a tremendous impact upon him, and he tells about his grandfather in one of his books. His grandfather had a profound impact, especially during a week-long visit that Stanley made to his grandfather's home when he was 16 years of age. He says, after my grandfather started to preach, he decided to buy a tent and begin preaching in it. The cost 
of the tent was $300, and he had no idea where he was going to get that much money. You see, his grandfather gave him the example of living on the edge. He knew that God had called him to do this. He ordered the tent, but he had no idea how that was going to be, how the cost of that was going to be met. He had a vision while he was praying, and he saw a little house with a fence around it. He recognized it in his vision as a place he thought he had seen one time during a visit to a little town not far away. The next day, he went into that town and he walked up and down the streets until he found the house he had seen in the vision. At that point, he got scared. You see, the enemy came against him. He got scared. Still, he knew that God had something to do with it, and so he finally got up his courage and he knocked on the door. A woman answered and said, Why, Mr. Stanley, I've been wanting to talk to you. She invited him in, and after they had talked a few minutes, she excused herself and said, I've got something for you. She came back in the room and handed him a brown paper bag. In it were three hundred one dollar bills. She said, God told me to give this to you. And then Dr. Stanley concludes with this thought. I thought about that later and put that experience into these words. Words that he puts into the mouth of God. He says, you trust me and I'll provide all your needs. Don't look to anybody else. Look to me. Where are your eyes today? What's your vision? Are they on the problems? Are they on the obstacles and the discouragement and what people are saying and all those other things the devil can throw in your way? Then put your eyes on Jesus and be strong in him. Let's bow together. Father, this morning there are some Christian soldiers who are here, some of your children who have stepped to the edge, some even in recent days, and perhaps already they are feeling the wrath of the enemy. My prayer is that you will strengthen them, that they indeed would call upon you, that they would handle those obstacles like Nehemiah did, and as a result of it, they'll build the wall. They'll accomplish the task. They'll achieve the vision you've put in their hearts. And bless them, I pray, in the process. And may all of us keep our eyes upon you. It's in Jesus' name that I pray this. Amen. Amen.